Well, Paul, it is a joy to have you on the podcast today. And you, we have known each other for a while, but this is something that maybe people don't know. I don't know that you even know this. All right. The first memory I have of youth group retreats, I know the what guest you're speaker about. was you. Yep. I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And I think it was at Craigans, maybe, yep. up in, in Brainerd, Minnesota. And I just remember thinking, man, this guy is tall and he looks like Jesus. And that's my first memory in youth, really youth groups. So full circle. I'm going to tell you that that retreat changed my life or could have. I don't know if you will remember this, but I introduced my new daughter. I have five kids now, but she was my first. And I made an early dad mistake. And that was to not only show off his daughter, but I picked her up and I like to throw her spinner, catcher on the way down. And I did that in front of your whole group and missed her here and caught her here. Ooh. So it could have changed my life radically. Right. Uh, my wife probably wouldn't have let me back in had I dropped my daughter from, you know, it was probably 15 feet in the air that I threw her. <laughs> I, when I was in sixth grade, um, Sean Rail, he's one of our campus pastors, a ministrista, he, we were playing a game and we had a tarp and they were throwing students up in the air. Mm -hmm. And I was very small at the time. And they threw me up in the air, probably was up 15, 20 feet. And the way he tells the story is he saw his job flash before his eyes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sa said, I really hope that they catch this kid. And sure enough, they caught me. I'm alive. But similar stories of, I guess, maybe I'm the common denominator of that. When I'm around, I just, I stress people out. But hopefully you're not stressed right now. I'm and not. now you are the executive director of Venture. And maybe for those who aren't familiar with Venture, give them your elevator pitch of, of what the organization is. For us, we've supported Venture through Kingdom Builders for yeah. many years and have partnered together on so many different things. But maybe there's people listening that aren't quite as familiar with your organization. So talk about that. And then I have a lot of questions for you. All right, cool. Well, I think if I'm going to talk about Venture, I can start by thanking you um, on behalf of the decisions your family makes, the church makes, because like you said, Man, we have been partners for a lot of years. Um, before I get into what we do, I think I was trying to do the math, and I think River Valley and the generosity of people who call that their home church, and I know that the reach is a lot broader for this, uh, have provided um, close to 9 million meals. Wow. I know you all just, at least at the time that we're talking, celebrated the, the big one day to feed the world, yep, yep. Um, which was epic. Um, and so to be able to say, say thanks to those people that gave in that moment, but then also just over the years. So Venture, um, as a partner, we work in the tough places. And here's kind of how we define tough places. Um, it's the intersection of unreached, unsafe, and under-resourced. So I'll start in the middle. Unsafe, we specifically target areas where there is uh, one of the countries has the longest ongoing civil war, more than 70 years. Um, we target communities where up to 90% of the girls are being trafficked. Um, we work in countries where this last year, um, three people were killed simply for sharing the gospel and sharing a meal. Mm. So that's what we mean when we say unsafe, specifically around refugee crisis, anti-trafficking, poverty, and persecution. Um, and then the unreached, for us, it's really important um, that the um, less than 2% gospel witness. So for the average listener, that means um, less than two people out of every hundred even heard the name of Jesus. And then in the areas where we're talking about more than that for me is this idea, they, they don't know that there's a God that's not mad at them. 
that has a design that wants them to thrive, that they were made in the Imago Day, which really we've seen changes everything. Right. Um, and then under-resourced, uh, th- those first two, unsafe and unreached. And then specifically, we target places with less than where less than 1% of all Christian giving goes which might be one of the biggest injustices where it's needed the most, where it's the darkest, um, is the least amount of investment. So it's those kind of three things. And then we respond by working with local leaders in those areas, um, coming up with everything from feeding programs, safe houses, border patrol stations, um, to more developmental things like farming and education, feminine hygiene. Um, And then the special sauce, if you will, is every program, every project, every region, uh, we pair church planting with that. Mm-hmm. And so over the last four years, our uh, global partners that we work with have planted more than um, 4,000 churches in unreached areas. Wow. It's amazing. And again, one of our, our partners that we love working alongside of and basing yourself out of here in, in Minneapolis, we have a lot of proximity together. Yeah. But one of the things that I think has has been in the news lately or has bubbled up to the service, there's this documentary. I've not seen it, but it's uh, called Savior Complex from HBO. And it's the story of this uh, woman who moves to Uganda with a, a heart to help. And there's both. There's two sides of the story. We're not here to talk about this documentary, but essentially, one side of the story is we did a lot of good work. It didn't always work itself out, you know, to be perfect, but we did a lot of good work. And the other side, accusations of murdering children by their lack of licensing and care and all sorts of thing. And and it kind of has has rebubbled up to the surface this idea that has persisted throughout the last several decades of this, in some ways, white savior complex, but in other ways, just this American savior complex that we're trying to insert ourselves, just like we insert ourselves in war, is we're trying to insert ourselves as we are the ones who help solve all the problems. And there's a book out there called When Helping Hurts. And I know our team has, has talked about, we don't really love the concept of that book because it, what can happen is y- you actually get paralyzed and do nothing, right? right? Right. And so when you think about that idea as somebody who you are from, you know, the United States and Minneapolis and people may say, why don't you just care about just the people in your community? Why spend all this time and effort and, you know, through venture, you do unique fundraising through running races and bikes and biking and all different things. Why, why go through all that time and effort if all you're doing is you're just a savior complex? How have you managed that tension? And I'm sure there's people listening, whether it's about their church, about their heart for missions, missionaries, whoever it is, have had that accusation thrown against them. I'm sure you have as well. How have you processed that? And we'll follow that trail for a bit. Yeah, there was a whole bunch there. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I will start. Uh, I'm familiar like with When Helping Hurts or another book like that's yeah. uh, Toxic Charity. Right. Um, I think this is a great format for this conversation. You bet. I just don't want people to not hear you. You bet. Um, I think this is a great format for this conversation because anytime someone, I'm going to say, comes at me with that question, and I don't mean guns blazing. Yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to seek to understand why they're asking that question. What's their worldview? What's their background? What's their experience? Um, Because I think we have the best chance at being in that conversation when we can understand, well, where is either your pain point, your interest point? Um, I think it's pretty easy to identify people's talking points, but we have to get past kind of some of those talking points um, to the heart of 
What do they really care about? And can I help move the conversation along? So you asked, you asked me, um, for me, I start, I'm going to answer for me and then I'm going to answer for venture. So remind me if I don't get back over here to venture. For me, um, one of the books I talked about was Toxic Charity. And whenever somebody asks a question like this particular um, HBO series, which I haven't seen. One of our values is we don't judge, we don't join. It's a lot easier to just be obedient to the work we're called to do instead of picking our heads up and trying to decide who's doing it right or wrong. Um, So for for me, when we talk about toxic charity, I think anything that is successful, especially a movement like the global church, is going to have a lot of blemishes. Mm -hmm. It's humanity. Humanity's toxic. So This is going to sound crazy. I go all the way back to the original ancient text in the book of Genesis, and I look at the start. And here's the start for me is God is, um, in this story, he is an artist, he's an architect, he's an engineer, he's a creator, and he's creating this garden, right? And in the garden, at the end of every day, he says it's good. In Hebrew, it's tov. And so it's tov, which means that Everything is thriving, and I am not, you know, a theologian, but it's like life begetting life. So everything is working together in in the way it's supposed to work. But you just get a couple of pages later, and things are broken or toxic, you know, uh, broken relationships, broken families, broken communities. And I think about that, and so if somebody— identifies, hey, something about what you are doing or somebody else is doing is broken, I'd say, yeah, that's that's humanity. Now, my other answer is this, that we are invited. I think of, um, I want to say it's Matthew 4 or 14. It's why I do nonprofit work, because when I was a pastor, I could never remember which verse. Um, in the Matthew. Yeah. In, in the Matthew, yeah. absolutely. There's a story that we all know of Jesus feeding the 5,000, or most of us know this. And there's this place where he says, uh, he took bread and he broke it, and he didn't give it to the people. He gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it. And that's really informative for me. We are invited into this. So I didn't invite myself into somebody else's situation. My What I have to do is I have to see where God's inviting me sure. and then do the best that I can. And so as it relates to the places where we work, we talk about learning from um, our global partners. We talk about learning from the global church. So when we go there— um, Our goal is to see what God's already doing there, even if it's just one person trying to do a hard work in a community that's never heard of Jesus. And we try to come alongside of that and say, what what are you doing? And so that could be planting churches or clean water or food or feminine hygiene. And then we figure out what our role is to come alongside of it. Mm -hmm. Um, We were pretty hard on ourselves about how we storytell. We just had our fundraising event, um, which we call our gala, and our director of international programs, she has her PhD from Princeton, um, is a meticulous, meticulously measures everything that we do and is very um, clear that we need to be celebrating the global church and not centering ourselves in the story. And so anyway, I was asking her what she thought about the gala. She goes, you did a great job storytelling. I only counted twice where you centered yourself. And she said, <laughs> one one time, maybe it's a little bit questionable. And so, but that is the kind of conversation is, um, I know I'm broken. I know I'd like to center myself in the middle of this last year, we provided 9 million meals and helped to rescue 500. And then I have to stop and say, our partners did that. My job 
is to have conversations like this, to be in relationship with churches. So I'll just say that's the starting point to the answer, Mm -hmm. and then you can tell me how to go deeper. Yeah, I think it's the right starting point. I think the the challenge people find is there's a zeal in a lot of us to— when we see people that are suffering and we respond with empathy and righteous anger and I want to do something— I think that is something that should be celebrated. That that attitude of we want to help people should be celebrated. You shared on a video you did for our Kingdom Builders, I think it was four or five years ago, and you got emotional talking about it. When I saw the, the children dancing on the garbage heaps, mm-hmm. I knew we had to do something, but also they have a joy in the midst of that. And so there's, there's this tension that we're in. The thing that I'm curious is if you've had a moment in your time in in being the executive director of this, or maybe even before this, to where you've been at odds with what you want to do and what you maybe think could cause a negative consequence, but could cause a big positive consequence. Some, for, for example, it, this is a, a, a small one, but in my dad's book, Fix It, he talks about how he was putting out signs for the church when we first were getting started. Mm-hmm. And the signs kept getting taken. And he was trying to figure out what the why the signs were getting taken, and he figured out that it was actually the police department that was taking the signs and saying you can't put signs up on the this public road. Sure. Real real estate agent, none of the no one's allowed to do that. So any signs you see are actually breaking the law. And he said, well, "What's the the punishment for the law?" And they said, "We just take your sign." So he thought, "I'm just going to find the cheapest signs I can have, and by the time our services are done." People have already found the signs, and then the police officers are going to take the signs off. And so it was kind of a creative solution that was inexpensive, that didn't really harm anyone, but technically kind of was breaking the law. So again, that's a small, funny example, and we try not to do that now when it's against the law, but I'm sure we still find their way, and there's probably church planners that are nodding their heads saying, oh, that's a good idea. But maybe a situation like that that you found yourself in that kind of is the the precipice of maybe that critique to where you've had to and I'm not necessarily looking for the time where you backed off or a time you pushed forward. It could right. be either one. But I think there are times as believers that we know maybe the government we're working with or the organization that we're trying to partner with is is not actually allowing us to do the work we want to do in our right. heart. So we have to ask ourselves and ask the Lord, is this a time where I step back or is this a time I press forward? So I don't know if there's a time you can think of that – you lived in that tension, and again, maybe you haven't made the call yet. Maybe you're in the midst of that right now, but I think it's helpful for people to process and hear other people and say, huh, you've been there too. Yeah, so I feel like we have these conversations on a macro level organizationally at Venture every single week. So we, when you deliver meals to refugees, um, especially in countries where it's illegal to help certain ethnic minorities— right. Um, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, how do you get food in and out of a port where you have to kind of grease the palms? And we we have historically um, not paid bribes. We have historically tried to work within the constraints of the local governments and municipalities. At the same time, um, we also work in countries that, and I'm being intentionally vague. Where yeah, and I'm people, not trying to get you in trouble right, either. Where, where people um, are being killed for sharing the gospel. Right. So on some level, we are always making decisions about which things we will follow and we won't follow. Right. Um, 
organizationally, when you are, we have our foundations in each of the countries or most of the countries. And so in order to have a foundation, a presence there, you have to follow the rules. Right, right. Um, but as it relates to, I, I'm thinking of two things, like when we had food stuck in port and you literally know that people are dying every day that food's in port and how much do you stick to your, we don't do bribes. Right. And I'm not going to tell you what we did. I'm just saying the urgency of trying to get food there mm-hmm. or places where girls are being trafficked. Um, right. And do you pay the pimp what right. he was going to pay to get the girl back? You know, these right. are decisions. We follow the lead of our global leaders mm-hmm. on those types of things. And then we have a board that helps us to decide. Right. And on a personal level, I think we need kind of a personal board of directors for those very things. Right right, right here, if you're listening in the U.S. or globally as you listen, you know your context. Um, you know those spaces and places where you feel like some of the rules are coming in conflict with where you are currently at in your spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we weren't supposed to do it alone. And so having people around you that you can, you know, um, kind of bounce some ideas and go, hey, historically, globally, biblically, what do you think we should be doing right here? And so we we rely on our board quite right. a bit for that. Yeah, I think having having advisors that can stand with you because because nobody wants to get caught and then turn around and see that nobody's standing with them in the midst of that. And and again, when I say I'm not trying to insinuate it's it's illegal against governments, but it's even our moral decisions mm-hmm. to where you say this culture would see that as a negative, but. Um, an example, I, I was on a global team recently and one of the workers there shared that they were trying to, to give us the idea of different cultures. And they said, this culture, who, who would you save if you got in a boat mm-hmm. and you were with your wife and your mother and you could only save one because the boat was drowning, who would you save? They said, in America, you'd save your wife because it's, you leave and cleave, mm-hmm. this is your wife. In this specific culture we were in, they said, you'd save your mother. Because your mother actually arranges your marriages for you. She can get you a new wife. No problem. Wow. They said, but in another culture, you would drown with them because it would be too big of a shame for you to go back to your family that you let one of your, your wife or your mother drown. So you'd actually drown with them. All three of you would die instead of saving you and somebody else. And of course, a generalization but I think in the midst of that, that there are people in other countries that by our moral standards, they're letting their people suffer. Or yeah. by our moral standards, it, you know, honor killings or no, they get beat up because they got bad grades or again, whatever it is, cultural norms that may not be the government, but is I'm, I want to... I want to stop them from doing that. And I've had to restrain myself at times, and I'm sure you have too, to see how do you let people live this way? What what have been messages that God has spoken to you or things you've learned from the people around you or other partners you work with in different cultures that have maybe helped shape and live with some of those answers, but also not back down from that zeal? Because again, and I keep going back to this circle of this like savior complex, but it's this righteous anger of, People are suffering and I want to do something, but how much How much do I do and how much can I do in a short amount of time? Yeah, I love that you keep coming back to it because I, I do think this conversation around savior complex, righteous zeal, there's a spiritual battle around it yeah. that wants to kind of paralyze everything and right. just stop. Um, and I could very easily just put the verses, you know, God's kingdom will move forcefully. Right. Um, 
But each individual has to figure out, first of all, what do they think their best decision is as it relates to how they know God's made them, what Scripture says, and then how their community talks to them. Um, I think internationally, as you were talking, I was thinking about we— we like to share our partner stories and probably the person that people resonate the most with of our international partners is a young woman by the name of Hannah. Hannah was somebody who was in one of those villages where up to 90% of the girls are trafficked. Her sister was trafficked and um, fast forward by the time she was rescued, it was estimated that she was abused physically, mentally, um, and sexually 20,000 times. Wow which is very hard to wrap your mind around. Um, She was trafficked by her neighbor. um, And Hannah becomes a Christ follower through one of the programs, one of our partners, and she's reading um, the Bible. And it says she's supposed to forgive. And so she's like, God forgave me. And she goes to her neighbor that trafficked her sister and forgave him. Mm. Now, he ends up being so moved by this, he becomes a Christ follower. In one of the stories or videos that we share, we share that he becomes the pastor of the church. (laughs) That, for some people, they're like, power of the gospel. For some people, they're like, where's the justice and accountability, right? Right. Um, The rest of the story is he spent most of his life um, going and trying to rescue the girls that he's been trafficked. The rest of the story is in that culture. Um, Almost every adult is some level of complicit. Uh, not because they're good or bad people, but because it's hard to understand what it means to live in that kind of poverty and oppression, um, that kind of a caste system, mm-hmm. what survival means when you have to decide between um, I can traffic one child and the other seven can live mm-hmm. or those seven go hungry along with the eighth. I, and yeah. I'm not, I don't live in that scenario where I, I can tell somebody how to make that decision. What I can say is that the gospel is powerful for the oppressed and the oppressor. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when we center ourselves in the story, we feel like if here's the spectrum and it's like, here's the pimps and here's God, we like to think we're way closer (laughs) over here to God. But when I read the Bible, we're all kind of over here. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I'm going to ever traffic a girl, but what I am saying is we can— we like to move ourselves like one of those, I don't, I think they're abacus, those yep, like yep. wooden beads. We like to do this to ourselves pretty quickly. And so being able to take a deep breath, to learn from a different person, a different culture, why they are doing the things they're doing, and then putting that through the filter of the timeless gospel that is relevant for every person on the planet throughout history and trying to find space where we can connect and learn to understand each other has been helpful in the work, especially because we work in multiple countries. Mm-hmm. You alluded to like a shame culture. That's a real thing. Mm-hmm. We talk about how we do business, the venture team in the U.S. sometimes is different than how we do interpersonal relationships in a country in Southeast Asia, our team over there. And we have to find middle ground and go, okay, what's the kingdom thing that we're going to expect out of all of us. Mm-hmm. It's such a good answer and an inspiring story. For you, you know, you hear a story like that, maybe those listening, they hear a story like that, and they're moved then to do something. We've talked kind of about the the critiques of doing something and maybe the caution around doing something, but there's a passion yeah. that comes from doing things like that. When you hear a story of that, you there's something that rises in you that says, I want more Hannah's. 
Absolutely. I want more stories like that. When you can look back to the beginning of your journey or throughout the journey, maybe there's a moment or two that jump out that say, this is where I decided I wanted to devote my life to this versus many people who I'm one of them, right? I, I go on a short-term team or I do this. I, I found my, my understanding of how I fit in this purpose is we're trying to raise a billion dollars through our network yep. to give to missions every single year. So I'm like, okay, I, I, even though I, I, I'm doing that and we're trying to raise a billion with a B by training through all our generosity accelerators and all the things that we're doing, there still is that tinge of me of like, but should I just go and do something else? And I've, I've come to the, the conclusion that, no, this is where God wants me to be right now. But for you, obviously, God wants you to be there. What were moments along the way that, that affirmed that for you, that maybe people who are still trying to figure that out, maybe they're, they're older and they'd say, my chapter that I thought maybe it's 30 years of pastoring and now I'm, I'm finishing that chapter, and, but maybe there's more for me. As somebody who's at the beginning, graduating high school or, or college that says, I, I, I hear stories like that and I want to do something about it. And maybe it isn't trafficking specifically, but it's, it's doing something out of maybe our normal daily life to go and help others. What has God spoken to you and how have you seen that revealed in your own life? It's a great question. I'm going to take a quick side, and I would say you have a prophetic voice. Uh, as I hear you talk, and I, I love listening to you, it's probably how we became friends. I would always be like when I see you, you know, you're really good at this, <laughs> and you're always super humble. You're not like, yeah, I'm pretty good. Um, but you have a prophetic voice. Even how you worded that and the wrestling, um, I think that wrestling is God's spirit in all of us. And trying to find that equilibrium and balance because there are different voices vying for our attention, different things pulling at us, um, and Scripture invites us to live differently. It doesn't matter if you're in Apple Valley or if you're in Aspen or if you're in Nepal. It, it doesn't really matter. The God of the universe through His Spirit is calling us to live this, this uh different life. And it's always different than what we were maybe last month or last year. So it's not, you should be different like me. It's it's this holy agitation to keep, because the kingdom, you go all the way back to the garden and Tove. What I love about, what I love about that is, yeah, a couple pages later, everything's broken. But then the rest of the book is God chasing, right. Right. wooing, calling us, restoring reconciling. And then he invites us to be a part of it. And I think our greatest answer is how can I best be a part of that reconciling, restoring wherever that, wherever that takes for me. Um, so it's, uh, venture actually started, um, as a bike ride. Okay. We have a, we have a pretty complicated origin story, but, but it was three guys in a chapel at a university who heard a missionary and decided I'm going to bike across country. Um, they're going to raise money. And they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't own bikes. They were they, really, I mean, they were ridiculous. One of the guys, just because you laughed, this is how much they didn't know about cycling. He's like, what are we going to do when we're not cycling? And he thought, I'll read. So he brought the entire Lord of the Rings <laughs> trilogy hardbound on the bike. Just saying yeah. he might not be the yeah, sharpest stick in the woods. <laughs> um, anyway, they had invited me to come on the trip. And I said no um, for a couple of reasons. I Super cool idea, epic, awesome. But first of all, I didn't think they'd make it. And secondly, um, I had some commitments over the summer and I, that I felt like I couldn't get rid of, you know. 
Anyway, they end up biking across the country. They raised $17,000 for missions. And that was the start of something incredible. And I was left with, I missed it. I think a lot of times we get opportunities and we feel like we miss it. I thought God was saying, well, I told you so. I gave you a really great opportunity. You didn't take it. You're just choosing comfort, whatever. I don't think, I don't think God talks to us that way anymore. Right. Um, I think he was making an impression. I think missions trips are one of those best places to right. make an impression um, that affects you, whether it's how much we buy at Target or whether we live in the United States or not. Right. Uh, and so I just started paying attention to that. Fast forward, I'm pastoring down in Dallas, Texas, um, and uh, the bike ride came through. There was another group coming through, and we hosted them, and it moved my heart again. And then a year later, they called, and they said, hey, would you— lead a trip. And I'm like, well, I said no once. I'm not going to say no twice. Right. End up, my wife and I um, led a team of 10 to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And uh, we were raising money for impoverished girls living, um, literally living in the, in the dump. And the last day I was, we were summiting and we had this great idea that we were going to hike all the way through the night so that we would get to the summit at sunrise. My problem was that I woke up as sick as I've ever been in my entire life. Um, it's called mountain altitude sickness. Less uh, oxygen gets to your blood, less blood gets to your brain. I was really sick. I'm not a biology major, but you have two exits in your body. That was all right. happening for me um, going up that mountain. And I got to the top and I thought I was going to have one of these moments. Have you ever like nailed it on a missions trip where, where you do the video in the place and it inspires lots of people? I thought I was going to have that moment. And the reality was I just wanted to get off the mountain, going down the mountain. The goodness of God's Spirit brought up Isaiah 58, 10 and 11. Probably wouldn't have known it was 10 and 11 at that point. Um, but it just says, if you're generous with the hungry and you give yourself fully to those in need, then you will glow in the darkness and your dark night will become like the noonday and I'll show you where to go and you'll be like a well-watered garden. Mm -hmm. For me, in that moment, I was like, I feel spent, but I felt spent on behalf of other people, specifically marginalized people. I started paying attention. There's just a lot of verses about the marginalized, about the quadrant of the oppressed. And for my wife and I, and this is where I'm very clear with this story, why I like that it's not just a 140-character tweet. It's, it's not for everybody. But we decided for our kids, we had two at the time, we wanted them to understand the gospel through the eyes of the poor and the oppressed. And if you ever have things where the Spirit's talking to you, then all of a sudden, it's like uh, every place in Scripture, it just started right, popping. Right. Like, what kind of car do you drive? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. A, a Honda Civic okay. hatchback. When you got, oh, nice. Yeah. When you got the Honda Civic hatchback, did you all of a sudden notice a ton of Everywhere. Honda Right? Yeah. So this is what it was like for me when the Holy Spirit got my attention on the mountain. Everywhere in Scripture, I just couldn't get away from it. And then in my city that I live in, I mean— marginalized, just break my heart. And so this is what keeps me close to Jesus. This is what I think is so beautiful. It's not the only thing. I think lavishly rich people deserve to know that Jesus loves them. I think middle America deserves, I think. But for me, without shaming or even inspiring other people to do what my family is doing, I can just go, the gospel's beautiful. And this is where it comes alive to me the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. And you can tell that the passion that you have for it is deeper than just a a surface level passion to pat someone on on you know 
on the back and get a photo op and even the moment of Kilimanjaro that you thought was going to be that epic moment, yeah. right? I think God reminds us of that so many times when when we try to manufacture it. He's like, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying the Lord gave you altitude sickness, but it is like in those moments where we try to make it about that moment mm-hmm. versus God says, no, there's a lesson that I want you to learn. And for people who maybe, again, maybe they're in a situation where they feel like I want to go and I want to do something great for God. The thing that is, I mean, every you've probably preached it as a pastor. I know so many pastors have preached it. But God, more than just the things you do, he cares about why you do it. Yeah. And the rest of the world doesn't have that same metric because they don't know your motives. But God does. Yeah. And that's a scary place to be in yeah. some senses, to say, am I feeding the poor? Am I doing this work for the hungry? And of course, that's kind of what started this conversation of the the critique of the world, which again, I don't subscribe to that. That I didn't want to talk about it because I believe it. Right. But more so actually debunk it mm-hmm. to say, sure, that can be true, but that can be true for everyone, right? That can be true yes. in business. That can be true in ministry. That can be true as teaching in schools is if it is about you and it's about how you can prove something to God or prove something to others or anything other than, God, I want to be obedient to you. You talked about the spectrum that we're on. When I see Paul talk about it, he says, I am chief of sinners. That's right. We love the testimony, right? We love Paul going from Saul to Paul. We love the testimony of this pimp going from, or the the neighbor who, mm-hmm. who sold his his neighbor and became a pastor. But again, when you reflect and you hold up that storybook, it's all of a sudden a mirror and you go, oh my goodness, yeah, that's me. And I, I, when you work with the marginalized and the poor and the suffering, I feel like that becomes more evident. And as a recording, as I just got back from uh, overseas, and I think we constantly need those reminders. And maybe as we wrap this conversation up, that you could encourage people who, maybe they're not in that every single day, even though many people listening to this are in ministry or, or ministry surrounds their life and they are working with the poor and the marginalized. But I think we still can get caught up in whatever it is we get caught up in, the news cycle or the, um, you know, our cars or our phones or whatever it is. Maybe encourage us as we close with how you constantly remind yourself of that or how you encourage people who maybe are not in that situation every day. But I'm sure even as executive director of an organization that's trying to help the marginalized, you can get caught up in the KPIs, you can get caught up in the the fundraising and get caught up in the, the, the galas and all the different things and miss it. So how do you constantly remind yourself and keep keep it at the forefront? I love ending on this because first of all, um, we go back to two things. First of all, what we're learning from Scripture. If we can't personally talk about what we're learning from Scripture, then we're going to go try to find it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so being anchored in this book that is timeless across time and space, um, that is living and breathing and has something to say for me and my family is a, is um, prolific, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then we, we want to learn from the global church. So it is not about going and saving somebody. It is about, so in the global church, like if we, you know, we have a ton of resources, but they have a level of resilience mm-hmm. that we don't have, yeah. you know, we have a ton of knowledge, but their discipleship model is incredible. Um, and I, I think of words like joy. And uh, I was reading in, I want to say it's 2 
Corinthians about the Macedonian church. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, for me, blows my mind because it says, hey, they're going through a super difficult time and they're poor. And you know what it says? But they were joyful and they were generous. And so these these things that the kingdom gives all of us is really important to, to look at. And then if I'm talking to somebody, I always like... I want to seek to understand where they're coming from. I don't actually want to um, prove them wrong or even bring them over to my side, but, hey, where are you coming from? And what can I learn from your perspective? And then um, to try to balance it out, because you you brought up um, when helping hurts or yeah. like uh, toxic charity or any number, but read the other books as well. Uh, there's a book called um, – gratefulness. No, Mm. factfulness. Yeah, yeah. Factfulness is a great book. Factfulness will make you go, hey, we're doing some really good things. And then you look up what percentage the Christian church is doing in that factfulness. It's Mm -hmm. incredible. Um, You read read things like um, Hole in the Gospel or Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger or uh, um, any number of Generous Justice by Timothy Keller, God rest his soul. they're incredible to balance our perspective. I'm not telling people what to read, but I'd encourage you yeah. to have a variety of voices anchored in Scripture, knowing that the Spirit is talking to you, and and I think um, becoming Holy Spirit sociologists. So mm. a, a sociologist simply observes what's happening and looks for the pattern in people. Uh, for me, a Holy Spirit sociologist observes where God is directing you and looks for the pattern. So looks back and kind of projects forward. I loved the um, the podcast you had with Kirk Graham, mm-hmm. um, just about his ability and your pops's ability, sorry, yeah. um, Pastor Rob's no, ability kidding. to um, be forward-looking. Well, mm-hmm. we have that opportunity in our own lives yeah. by paying attention to what God's doing around us and in us um, and having a settled space there so that we don't have to put on other people, verify what I believe by you being my echo chamber. Right. Instead, going, I, I want to better understand and see where the Imago Dei is in you. And if I can find that, then the Holy Spirit's working through me to build those kind of bridges and connection. That's awesome. I love it. Holy Spirit sociologists. We need much more of that versus the other sociologists that we have running around social media. It, and, that's it. And your passion is evident, the story of of how you got involved. And, and I think maybe for, for those listening— I'm inspired by your story that the first time you said no, but you didn't miss the opportunity the next time. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's for people in their churches or maybe it's for people in the next step that God has. Maybe they feel like they missed a moment, but maybe there's another time where it's circling back where the bikes are going to be coming through Dallas or yeah. whatever it is to where God's going to get a hold of their heart again. And I, I'm a strong believer that many of the people, most of the people who are listening to this are right where God wants them to be and they just need to continue going. But maybe there's that next level of what can we do? I mean, for us, you mentioned one day to feed the world. I don't know that we've talked about it on Talking Church before, but that was when Pastor Rob felt we need to do more to feed the hungry and help the hurting. And last year we did 10.6 million for kingdom builders. Like, no. I mean, it, you, most people would say, what do you mean you need to give more money to that? Right. But it's, no, we feel like there's more in us. And then we ended up raising a million dollars in a weekend, right? And so I think there's opportunities out there where when you continue to hear from God's voice, man, that that level of sociology and obedience and the map and, and the journey that God has, 
it's going to take us places that we could have never imagined. And so I am grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for Venture, for those who want to learn more, venture.org, right? That's it, yeah. And they can go there and, and find out about the amazing organization. We support you. We know many in our network support you. And I hope that many more do as they find ways to help care for the marginalized, the, the oppressed, the hurt. And you do such a great job at that. So thank you for your ministry and thank you for your time today. Thanks, Logan. This was a blast.